And I think that comfort and familiarity um, that people kind of expect when they when they come to our restaurant, they're they're really getting it now, and I, I think have a, even a greater appetite for it and appreciation for it now. So we're really just kind of focusing on our core work and and grateful for the opportunity to be able to do it and do it safely outdoors. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The impact of the pandemic on so many countries has been catastrophic. The US is in the throes of arguably the most important election in its history, with a lot of civil unrest, a pandemic that's still threatening the lives of many, and a restaurant sector in disarray. What is the future of not only the US food industry, but a country the world has often looked to as a shining light? Nate Norris is the chef de cuisine of one of America's most influential restaurants, Zuni Cafe in San Francisco. Nate, how are you? I'm doing all right, Huck. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. What's it like in San Francisco at the moment? It's been a, a hell of a year for you guys. Yeah, San Francisco at the moment. We're uh, in, the, in the thralls of uh, election season, as I think most of the, the world is probably aware and that you know goes from things for the election for the presidency, but all the way down through local elections. It's a very active time. Uh, so, so San Francisco is in the, like much of the United States, in the throes of coronavirus, but also uh, election time and people being very uh, particularly active in the democratic process, probably more so than anybody uh, that's alive today can recall. How does how does it feel for you at the moment, given that? There's still restrictions with the pandemic and such a such an integral election in regards to America's future. What's what's your sense at the moment? Uh, I it's a lot of a lot of kind of con- conflicting feelings on it. Um, it it's a really critical time uh, in the U.S. here, uh, where uh, my personal view is that that we're really being at the at the national level, at the presidency level, being kind of forced to decide between whether we want some sort of authoritarian form of government or whether we want to continue on with democracy, um, it seems that that Trump is pretty intent on uh, you know having having his way, and and I think a lot of people that uh, have a more conservative perspective are seeing that their ideas don't don't went out very well in an open democracy, that there's not a majority to support a lot of the more conservative, uh, certainly the more conservative social perspectives that, con- that U.S. conservatives hold. Uh, and so that really the only way to continue to have those sorts of rules in the courts and in the, in the laws uh, is, to, is to, you know, subvert democracy. Um, it's certainly not the first and only time it's uh, but but this is a pretty there's a pretty hard turn I think to trying to subvert the whole process and I it, and my my perspective is that that's really what we're voting on here um, you know people can definitely have there's plenty of room for people to disagree on on policy and and which direction uh, we might go in that regard but but in terms of the overall structure of how we are governed I, I think I think we're kind of having to pick here between uh you know self-rule, self-governance, or, or a more authoritarian approach. 
What's the restrictions there at the moment? You still there's still escalating cases in the U.S. Uh, in different states, but what's what's the situation for you guys in San Francisco? Yeah, so in in San Francisco, we're at the least restrictive uh, uh, form of uh, rules that we've been under since the middle of March. Uh, and so in the hospitality sector, what that looks like is uh, restaurants are able to be open indoors uh, up to 25% of their capacity, uh, provided that's fewer than 100 patrons. And uh, the vast majority of restaurants have not opted to do that. It's only been about two weeks that that's been permissible, maybe even maybe just under two weeks at this point, that that's been permissible to do the indoor dining. Um, and the weather's quite nice in San Francisco this time of year. Uh, we kind of have a, a late summer in our uh, northern hemisphere uh, summer here. So while, while much of the United States has a, has a summer uh, kind of in July and August, San Francisco's best weather's and kind of warmest weather's in September and October. So we're really in the thralls of that at the moment. So there's quite a really robust outdoor dining scene going on. And were it not that this was in the midst of a, a terrible pandemic, uh, it, it would be it would be a, a nice uh, a really nice thing uh, to see. But uh, there's a con the context to, you can't separate it from the context. But a lot of outdoor dining, a lot of really creative approaches to it. Uh, San Francisco is not a city that's very uh, you know, it doesn't take a light touch to permitting and uh, kind of uh, bureaucratic regulation over what businesses do. Uh, so. Uh, the pandemic has definitely uh, seen the shown the government to take a bit of a more hands-off approach. So there's a lot more creativity you're seeing in how people are approaching outdoor spaces for their restaurants, um, which is great great to see. And and customers are out. Customers are out enjoying the weather and eating outdoors. The indoor dining that's going on, um, you know, it's kind of the things that I've seen now are just anecdotal because there hasn't been enough time, but some I've seen some places open and open to like capacities that at least visually looking don't seem very safe uh, at all seem really crowded. Um, but like I said, there's very few places that have uh, opted to take customers inside yet. What What's the response from some of your guests? Are they happy to be out or some are still a bit nervous? What's what happens in the restaurant? No, I think with our outdoor dining, which is Zuni's, a, we have about 175 person capacity in the restaurant. And right now we're seating about no more than 30 guests at a time outdoors. So we're at really tiny scale relative to our normal scale. Uh, and but the guests that are there are really, really appreciative, uh, uh, you know, to a person. You know, the responses that I hear is just we're, we're so glad you're open. So glad to be back, and just uh, the the feelings of familiarity are really critical. It's something that Zuni really trades in uh, in in normal times, uh, and, and I think that comfort and familiarity um, that people kind of expect when they when they come to our restaurant, they're they're really getting it now, and I, I think have a, even a greater appetite for it and appreciation for it now. So we're really just kind of focusing on our core work and and grateful for the opportunity to be able to do it and do it safely outdoors with, with, with nice seasonable weather. But we know that, you know, that this is potentially temporary and we'll, we'll see uh, where, th where things go and, and how we'll have to adapt as seasons change and it gets wet and cool 
um, and potentially seeing the virus spike up again. Uh, the San Francisco is doing a as, a as a municipality a good job of keeping uh, virus levels down, but that's it still fluctuates and and all the predictions are that that things will be rising in the coming months. It's been over half a year of lockdowns and restrictions. What, what sort of impact has had that had on Zuni and, and what sort of models do you do to get through that period? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a whirlwind uh, for sure. Uh, I haven't really taken much time off myself during the time uh, and it feels uh, you know like ages ago as I'm sure uh, all sorts of people are having that experience now. You know, where did the time go and what have we done? Um, well, just a I'll take it through chronologically um, from from the beginning of when it was became apparent that we were going to need to shut down, which is maybe in the second or third week of March uh, before we were mandated to shut down. We were preparing to shut down. And at that point, uh, you know, it's just predictions were all over the map of where things were headed. But it, to see where we are now, uh, it just was really hard to imagine imagine that uh, back in March, but clearly that was the case. So we uh, initially just kind of shut down and, and regrouped on what what it was we were going to focus on doing and what was most critical um, yeah, while we were closed. Uh, the, the, the assistance that uh, residents in the United States, workers in the United States get from the government should they be unemployed is typically pretty pretty sparse. Um, and so we were really concerned about people's, uh, you know, being able to make it a long time uh, financially without pay. And we have a certain amount of the workforce that don't have access to that system at all. And so have no, no form of uh, wage replacement should they be out of work. So we were really focused primarily on the folks who that was the situation for. At SUNY, we had about 20 of our 100-person staff uh, who, who fit into that category. And we weren't able to create employment for all of them, but we, we were able to make some jobs for some of them in the short term uh, initially and not knowing where things were headed. Um, but we got involved with a, with a food program put together by some uh, hospitality restaurant and bakery folks uh, with a program in San Francisco that they put together and is still going on. It was called San Francisco New Deal um, and, you know, kind of named after the, the U.S. legislation from the Franklin Delano Roosevelt era, which was uh, the kind of New Deal, which brought in a lot of uh, government investment in jobs and people at a t at, during the Great Depression. So this is kind of modeled, you know, on much certainly much smaller scale, but modeled after, okay, let's get money in, invested in businesses, and that money invested in jobs, and that money will spill out into the community. And the, so what we were doing under those programs and what they're still doing, but we're no longer a part of was uh, different community groups in the city that were in either directly in need of food or were in a position to kind of distribute food to people that were in need, um, were partnered up with restaurants or other food service businesses to get to hire their staff back to come in and work and produce food uh, that was then like individually packaged and distributed, delivered to, to these different groups. So what that looked like for Zuni 
was, uh, I'd say it was the first week of April, we began with uh, preparing meals for residents in public housing in San Francisco. Um, in, in the United States, uh, we, we really don't invest in, in housing and public housing very much uh, anymore. We haven't for a really long time. So the public housing that exists generally is provided only to the absolutely most poor people in our society. You have to be, uh, you know, literally at the far end of the income spectrum to qualify. And the vast majority of people that would even qualify don't have access to the housing because there's not very much of it. Um, so we, we were assigned some sites in the city uh, to, to make meals for. Um, we reached out, made connections with the, the kind of site management staff that, uh, at the at the housing sites, and uh, kind of coordinated on what what food seemed appropriate, what food people would want to eat, and we we just started cooking and and working with the team, putting together menus and kind of new operational structures and logistics management because the the program grew pretty quickly. Um, so there was we were at our peak making about fifteen hundred meals a week that we were just making in the restaurant and packaging individually and then delivering ourselves. So we, we worked with that program and the administration of the program switched over to another organization that uh, was founded by Chef Jose Andres. It's called, called World Central Kitchen, which I think many people are familiar with around the globe. And uh, so they, they were, became the administrators after several weeks of the New Deal program administering it. The program kept on. It was, it was I would say, from my perspective, uh, it was the best thing that we have been a part of since since the pandemic started. These programs, and and I'd say one of the most uh, consequential and best things the the restaurants ever been a part of. Um, you know, we we certainly have a a long history at at Zuni and have created a lot of wonderful experiences for people. But I think what we did with SF New Deal and World Central Kitchen or what you know, we were able to be a part of um, was some of the most critical and consequential things we could have done. Um, we really looked for ways to try and continue that work and, and it ran into a lot of kind of barriers and didn't have a lot of good luck in continuing it in, that, in the same ways. But we did that work uh, through the end of June. So going in, yeah, through the end of the month of June. So that was... I'd say that would have been all of about three and a half months of of doing the doing the food programs, um, and and it was great. It, cre- it 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 provided continual employment for about eight staff members who didn't have access to unemployment benefits, and that was really I know really critical for them. Um, and they've they've made that clear as well. Those folks continue to be employed at the restaurant as well as as well as others, and then. We so while that was going on, towards maybe the middle end of April, as testing for COVID became more available, I felt more comfortable taking on more kind of uh, revenue generating commercial operations, uh, doing takeout because I didn't. I really felt sensitive about bringing in staff to work and take what at that point felt like a lot of risk to be around one another. Um, and potentially infect one another with COVID uh, just so we could make kind of uh, 
you know, earn revenue for the restaurant, where the food programs we were doing felt that there was a critical enough need there, um, that, 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 that felt the, that the, uh, you know, the, pot, the, the kind of pluses and minuses of that situation felt like it was worthy of taking some more risk with, uh, you know, not, not being certain about who was, who was potentially infected with COVID. The, the takeout operations didn't uh, quite feel that they had the same, same amount of pressure for us to, to do that work. But by the end, middle to the end of April, uh, testing for folks working in what we, in the U.S. they use the term essential workers basically means people that we want to have working. Uh, essential makes it sound more critical than it is. But, you know, it ranges from anywhere from people that work in the healthcare industry, say in an emergency room, to people who, you know, pick up the garbage and wash dishes. So there's a there's a big range of, of folks and responsibilities. But the folks who or categorized as essential workers were able to get access to testing um, in the middle of April, pretty much on demand. Uh, you had to make an appointment, but the appointments were very easy to schedule. You could have scheduled on the day of and go in and get it. And so we, we said, okay, well, let's do some, let's put together some takeout here. And we got together with the team and kind of put a menu together of things we thought people would enjoy, focusing on a lot of the kind of classic dishes at Zuni, things we knew would travel well. Um, in a box or travel better than other things. Um, and everybody was getting the test every two weeks. And that's been that that's been ongoing since the middle of April. Um, where that hasn't taken a, a step. We haven't taken a step away from that at all. It's been uh, the same core group of folks working on it. It's, uh, and that's been that's been a, a, a good commercial success, you know, relatively limited compared to our normal operations, but, um, but definitely uh, a good source of revenue and, and, and jobs. Um, we're, we're thankful to be able to do it and be able to do it safely. The roast chicken that Zuni Cafe does is world famous. Did that make it onto as part of the takeaway model? Yeah, yeah, we, we definitely had to put our, our best foot forward there. Um, we, uh, I'd say we, we play the hits, Huck. So uh, <laughs> we de- we we definitely uh, led with the chicken in a in a box. Um, we, I mean, Zuni over its entire history of cooking the chicken from you know 1987, 1988, uh, when Judy Rogers took over as chef, we you know folks had wanted that chicken to go. They they wanted, can I order it and just pick it up? And the answer was always no. Um, Primarily because of capacity issues, we had adequate demand in the restaurant to you you know basically utilize the wood burning oven all day long, and and you know have the chicken for the sit down guests. Uh, there was no there's really never a way to create extra capacity to cook more chickens also for folks that wanted to take it home, um, and and have to eat at home. And also you just as a as a restaurant you just lose so much control um, over your product um, that. You know, a lot of restaurants are hesitant to want to do things to go in that way. Um, but, you know, that, that was definitely a big uh, self-factor for us. First, I would say the first month of it, we were just kind of gangbusters. It was, uh, we had to create systems that uh, were really, we would measure, the, you know, the chickens out like in 15-minute increments. How many can we produce in every 15-minute increment, it had, it, you know, selling, I we would be operational for three hours, about three hours of kind of pickup windows 
of time for people to come and get the chicken kind of in the prime dinner hours. And we, over those three hours, we would sell about 110 chickens, uh, which, which as a, as a, for a reference point, 110 chickens, if we did that in our normal operating model, where we're open for 12 operational hours, that's how many chickens we would sell over 12 hours on a busy day, uh, you know, in a full service model. So this was just, okay, yeah, let's take the best oven cook we have, uh, put them on the oven and let's, let's just say, you know, tell us where the limits are. You just, you get cooking and uh, let, let's make sure we can, we can put it out with something we're, we're proud to stand behind um, and give the people what they want. So it, that was, that was really fantastic to have that, you know, in, in such a challenging time for folks. Uh, and I certainly inside the restaurant and outside, it was just felt really good to be so, so appreciated and have so much demand and be able to, in some way, return to the work that we do and have that fulfillment that comes from, you know, doing work that you're proud of and, and people appreciate. Um, that, that, that was, that was really good. So definitely chicken on the menu. And, uh, I don't think they'll, they'll they're not going to let us take it away. Well, a trip to San Francisco is not complete without going to Zuni cafe and one of Australia's most famous chefs, Neil Perry even has a, an homage to the Zuni pickle on his burger at Rockpool in Sydney. What's so special about Zuni and can you tell us a little bit about the history and why it's so important to a communal hub in San Francisco? Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I can. Uh, there's certainly people that can maybe speak to the, the kind of origins history of Zuni uh, better than I can. But uh, I know that the, the restaurant was always uh, from the beginning a place that was really community driven um, where um, felt very kind of neighbor neighborhood sort of restaurant. Um, it's become more of a destination, but I think in its original days, it definitely, uh, was a hub. It was, uh, the original owner, uh, was a, as a Billy West, uh, who was a gay man, San Francisco, and was very connected with that community in San Francisco. And this is a 1979 when SUNY opened. So I think the, the, the gay community in San Francisco was very, was, and still is to this day, very closely tied to the restaurant, but, um, had a much bigger tent than that. And I think, uh, over the years as the, as the restaurant developed and certainly once Judy Rogers took over as the chef and she built the, the wood burning oven or she didn't build it herself, but had it built the wood burning oven and the mesquite fired charcoal grill, uh, that she wanted to have to work with. She, uh, the restaurant really built up a following and a lot of what Judy's vision was in that, particularly with the chicken, was to create some dishes on the menu that would really anchor people to the restaurant, um, to something that they know they could come back for and have this sense of familiarity, the sense of comfort, um, but also within that realm of familiarity and comfort, something that was also unique and special that you couldn't do at home. Well, well, we can all roast a chicken at home and make a make the bread salad. You know, the Zuni Cafe Cookbook has a has a really nice rendition of it in the book and. Uh, and people have good success making that at home. Most people don't have a wood burning oven at home. Um, and that, that, and I think that was part of Judy's vision was like, okay, well, how, what's going to keep them coming, coming back and kind of create some, some foundations, uh, that, that really 
will 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 drive the revenue of the business that gives a lot of space to take on more ambitious things more experimental things or 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 maybe more esoteric things in in Judy's approach uh particularly bringing French and Italian cuisines to American consumer and, and things that Judy experienced um, in her travels um, that the, the chicken and not just the chicken, but as an example, kind of created a space for that, that, you know, you're going to sell a certain amount of chicken, you know, you'll make a good margin on the chicken, you know, that's going to keep them coming back. Well, now we can start to do some esoteric things with quail. And if we only sell five quail and, you know, maybe we're not losing our shirt on it, but we're not making a very good return either. Um, you know, the chicken will help make up for that. It creates a lot of space to, to, to have that, that creativity and take some more risks with the food and, and put things on that maybe aren't the, you know, the most popular or the most, uh, uh, you know, broadly appealing. But, but it, I think it really attracts guests that know that they, you know, folks can come in and maybe they're, yeah, you're bringing a guest that, you know, isn't that adventurous in their eating, but you can have other things on the menu that maybe somebody was like, you know, look, I just don't want to go out and have chicken for dinner. I want to have something that, 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 that's a little more um, complex and interesting and, and challenges my palate in some other ways. And, and Judy did a really good job of balancing that. And I think it was very intentional on her end in the beginning of her tenure there to, to kind of create these things, uh, the hamburger and the Caesar salad or two other things on the menu that really anchor it um, to, to comfort and familiarity and allow us to build around the menu um, in broader and more complex ways. What's the journey been like for you at Zuni Cafe? You're responsible now for the direction of the food, um, taking into account that history that you were just speaking of. How do you approach the way you create dishes moving forward? Yeah, that's that's a fun question to think about right now. It's not uh, where my focus has been for a while uh, during the pandemic, and we're now that we're seating guests again, we're able to focus on that a little bit more. But uh, I really focus a lot on balance with food. I I I've worked at Zuni since two thousand four. And I, I worked. Uh, there was a period of time where I was I, where I wasn't there for about four years. Um, I left right around the time of Judy Rogers' passing in uh, November of 2013. And uh, so I worked with Judy for just under 10 years. And she's a chef who I worked under uh, for the longest period of time as well. And Judy was an immensely influential people, uh, an influential person uh, for people who worked with her and under her, um, and and for people who don't even know her, who just were influenced by her her work in the in the Zuni Cafe cookbook. Um, but I think one one thing uh, I learned many things from Judy, uh, small and large. But in the bigger picture, um, really a really analytical approach to food, particularly with tasting, analysis of tasting and analysis of technique, how those two things play together. And uh, Judy had a very scientific approach, um, but it wasn't disconnected from, uh, from, from love and from passion and from less tangible aspects. Um, but if, if we thought something was just right, and Judy even thought it was just right, we would still take just right and deviate two or three steps to the right and two or three steps to the left to just be sure that what was in the middle was just right. Um, so, you know, the, the soup could be 
you know, everybody could taste the soup and say, this is delicious. This is fantastic. Judy is going to take it on one side and add a little bit more salt in small increments. And we were going to taste those in a kind of a scaling up way. And then we'll, we'll go in the other direction and maybe we'll add the tiniest bit of, of lemon juice in, in small increments. And let's see how those things impact the soup and, and whether, whether we've made a, we were able to elevate it from what we thought was fantastic or does it take away? And, and she created space and time in the restaurant for that sort of process to happen. Um, uh, you know, anybody that uh, is familiar with restaurants and certainly those who work in them know that, you know, everything you're, you're working on, you know, two to five minute deadlines constantly. That's all it is, is deadlines. And to be able to create uh, space for that kind of analysis and thoughtfulness um, was really important to Judy and, 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 and she, a lot of that, she tied that into to efficiency as, as well. I think Judy was a, immensely efficient in her, her work in ways in that, you know, that the one builds on the other. It's not just that we can be kind of uh, relaxed in, in, a, in a, you know, a slow methodical process. No, we have to really narrow in on what are the things that we have full control over and know exactly how to do and just nail that every time with like minimal mistakes so that when it's time for the analysis, we can take a breath and we can take the time to take these, these small incremental steps and, and do that, that level of thoughtful tasting analysis or, or, or technique analysis in terms of, well, if we do it like this, if we do it at this temperature, is it better? Or is it if we do it at this temperature that's slightly cooler for a longer period of time, is it better? Um, a, lot, a lot of trial and error in that regard, but very, very scientific approach, uh, controlling variables. And, uh, and I think people will see that in her writing. So a lot of that, I think uh, has rubbed off on me. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not the brilliant genius that I would say Judy Rogers is. But my approach to the food definitely is one of thoughtful analysis uh, with tasting and texture, flavors, appearances, kind of aesthetics and and visual flow on the plate are things that are really important to me as well as, as, as balance. Um, there, there's many different ways to approach uh, food dishes and menus. Um, but uh, for me, the type of food that I think people expect at Zuni Cafe and that I like to, to make, and I think that I'm practiced in making and able to teach others to make is, is food that is, is uh, balanced uh, in, in its flavors and its textures and its temperatures, if it finds a place in a broader menu that is also balanced and has, and has a, has a flow to it, uh, through a menu and also, um, one that, that's, that's very much kind of seasonal and focused on, uh, what, what's right in front of us. Uh, the, the tangible nature of food, I think is really critical to me. I, I, I very much, need to do the work that I do in the creative process, it's really critical to me that I, that I'm at the market, that I'm at the farmer's market, that I'm conversing with the farmers and talking about the product, tasting it, tasting it, tasting different produce from different farmers and, uh, and being really thoughtful about selection and, um, and, and, and learning from them as well as, as trying to inform them on, on other, other things. So all of those things are pretty critical to me for the creative process. And, I think a restaurant like Zuni were, were really based in a lot of comfort and familiarity, as I, as I mentioned before. And I think 
that that sort of uh, kind of foundation for your food uh, has has a tendency to lead to things maybe feeling stale and boring. And so I think it's really critical to have um, to have uh, other aspects or bringing in uh, other people or different ingredients in the food um, as two examples of ways to keep things moving. We need, there, there need, there needs to be movement. There needs to be, um, progress would be the wrong word, but there, but there, but we need to be, we meet, we need to be moving forward or, or change, changing how we think about things. And, and part of the way uh, I like to do that is by really, um, challenging us to work with different ingredients um, that maybe we're less less familiar with and finding ways that we can fit that in and, and create some more comfort around around uh, different ingredients. And we're really fortunate to live in a part of the world where there's just such a an abundance of, of food and people uh, in the in the food food world, whether it's agriculture or other artisan producers and ranchers that we just have, we have access to so much locally. And, and I think if we weren't really kind of diving into that, that in all different ways, we, we'd be, we'd be kind of wasting what, what's available to us. Given the huge impact that the pandemic has had on the hospitality sector in the U S um, what does the reality look like for the future of the industry? Uh, I, that's a, I'm going to, I'll answer that kind of narrowly for a place like Zuni and maybe step back from that and a little more broadly as I see it. Um, but some, so the, the virus impacts, uh, just kind of a, from a, like a scientific biological standpoint, I think will, will impact how people feel comfortable being around one another, um, for some time. Um, I don't think those things will have a too dramatic impact on, you know, you know, once we get to a stage where we no longer need to isolate from one another, you know, presuming a vaccine that's effective, um, that we will, you know, move forward very cautiously, but, but our restaurants will be full again one day. And I don't think the impacts of the virus will prevent bustling full restaurants. I think there's still something in that's core to the, our humanity that will, will want us to, will, will continue to want to gather in, in those ways, particularly once we are feeling more secure and safe in doing it. Um, I, I know the, the economic impacts, uh, I think those will be in some ways longer lasting in regards to this question on how it impacts the business. Um, and I think a lot remains to be seen. Uh, in my view, the the United States um, and 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 much of the world is is in a bit of a kind of crossroads um, where there is uh, economic inequity. Certainly, in the United States, um, puts a lot of pressure on on business businesses, the workers, the business owners, and the customers. And I think the dynamic that exists there is at a point where there. Is, is a potential for a great amount of shift. And it's hard to say which way those things are going to shift. But I don't think in my lifetime I've seen a greater opportunity for a shift towards a more, uh, a more kind of fair or, or equitable uh, kind of economic distribution in our society. And that's a, that's a process, and it's not necessarily one that our society is going to choose to 
go down. It's not a process we're not necessarily going to um, partake in long term. It's my hope that we will. And I think to me, that's one area where I really want to see where, where I'm hopeful of sort of things that I would like to see happen. Uh, there's, there's a certain amount of uh, kind of damage to our existing system that, that enables uh, some new thinking to come in or not just new, new thinking because these types of thinking I'm talking about have been around for a long time, but that uh, the opportunity for different ideas to take up some oxygen in the room. And I think the way I see these issues of uh, economic fairness and equity um, and this uh, kind of real uh, income and access to, to resources, the, the uh, kind of uh, disparate nature of it, particularly in the United States and particularly in San Francisco, really impacts our ability and the restaurant to do our work as best we can. When, when our society is really divided into extremes, where we have people who are immensely wealthy and who are largely consumers of services and folks who are uh, immensely poor on the other end and are largely providers of services, that ultimately the service provider is not able to understand what is the product that they're providing. They don't know what it's like to be on the other side of the coin. Uh, and they don't have the opportunity to be on the other side of the coin. That exists right now, and, it, and there's a that that, that disparity, and, and and there's a lot of I think much more consequential impact to that disparity. But just from the uh, like uh, as an example, uh, the the busser in the restaurant. Uh, we have many bussers uh, who clear the tables, kind of a back waiter, you might call it, uh, who 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 clear the tables and fill waters and and do a lot of the kind of hustle behind the scenes work that, that's uh, interacting with the guests. Um, and, and, and they are learn, learned what they do and trained, and, and many of them are really excellent at it. But so few of them have, have, they have really limited opportunity because of the, 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 how, how people are compensated and the disparity between uh, the amount of money people have, that they don't get to be as the guest very often, and particularly not in a more fine dining situation. And I've, I've worked for people in my life who I think really saw that as a critical part of the experience, that, that we, can't, we can't provide the best experience for the guest if we don't know what it's like to be the guest. And not just know in like, well, I went out to a nice restaurant for my birthday once a year, and that was it. Like, I think there's a certain amount of, I want the service provider to be the consumer as well. And I think to be able to do our work really well, that's what we need to be able to do. And I th in my career, I've seen I've seen a shift as our society. I, I've been in this working as a chef for 22 years, and in those 22 years, I've seen the ability of the people who are doing the work in kitchens, the cooks and the sous chefs, their ability to be the consumer in a fine dining or high end restaurant such as Zuni, just just drastically has been reduced because the cost of providing that experience has gone up, but there the restaurant's ability to pay the wages of those people in a way that they can afford to be the consumer has not increased proportionally. And 
and I, I, I see the impacts of that on the cooks where there's a certain lack of understanding and it's not to be critical of them, but they don't have our society. It has gotten so, so divided financially that, that we're, I, I don't, I don't think we're going to be able to, to grow in the ways that I want to as a business and, and as a place of teaching and learning, unless we're able to find ways to have our, the people that are the staff, the workers of the restaurant also know in a really detailed lived experience way what it is to be the person being served and i think the i won't, won't go to detail on it but on the flip side of that that the the guests we we will you know uh, sometimes we'll have very bad behavior from guests and, and frequently i think at the root of the bad behavior from guests is not understanding what it is like to be the person who's providing the service and so I think both sides of that coin are critical, and uh, it's certainly not our, as a restaurant, the job to teach the consumer how to behave. Um, but I think the disparity in people's access to, to the ability to earn money and, and, uh, and have these experiences um, that, that when we have guests who behave at the kind of the worst end of the spectrum of guest behavior, it's, it's usually rooted in. I don't know what it's like to be the person serving someone else. You mentioned a little earlier that you've been working incredibly hard during this period to not only help your staff, but also save the business as well. What, what's this period of time been like for you personally? And has there been positives to come out of this? Uh, I, I, I think so, Huck. I mean, it's, it's hard to put a lot of positive spin on things. I, I, I think, uh, I'm, I'm immensely concerned about what's going on in our society and in a lot of ways right now. And I, I don't think we're, uh, you know, locked into some uh, positive direction. Um, but I think for me, for me personally, I really like to be uh, challenged in new ways. Um, and, and, and it's been while exhausting um, and not, you know, not always desirable, but, but the, but the, I like the different challenges that we're faced with. I like having to think about things critically in an, ongo on an ongoing way and, and um, having, having new challenges every day, I, I think is, is good for me mentally. It works, it keeps me sharp. Um, and uh, in terms of work, I, I think that's good. I think in other personal aspects, um, you know, it's been, a, it's been really, I think for a lot of people, it's been the pandemic's been very grounding um, and, and been helpful for people to really focus on what's, what's most critical. And um, I would like to think that I'm the sort of person that, that, you know, centers, centers people and family in their life on a, on a regular basis. But, but it's definitely um, brought the importance of, you know, those most close to you, I think, are, is even more critical. Uh, right now, at least for me, that that seems as, uh, of, uh, of of greater importance, you know. So uh, I try and take care of myself on a day to day basis, so I can, you know, stay sharp and, and and try and try and be a good, thoughtful, critical thinking member of society, and and you know, person you know in charge of running a running a large business and. You know, trying to make sure that we're doing the the best of that as we can. Um, you know, so sometimes that leads to you know waking up at two in the morning and thinking over things that that can be left to the morning. But you know, 
they just won't get out of your head. But that those are challenges uh, a lot of people a lot of people face and deal with. So um, I'm, I'm I'm glad to be in a position to to ha- have I think some influence and impact uh, uh, on things at, at the business and and in other people's lives. And I think uh, it's it certainly it certainly contributed a lot to to how I feel about what I do. And, 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 you know, what, what that means in the, you know, kind of in the broader world. Well, Nate, we're incredibly honored to have you share not only your story, but the perspective of the U.S. at the moment as well on Deep in the Weeds. Please keep in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon. Yeah, Huck, it was really nice speaking with you. I appreciate the time and the opportunity. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.